Welcome to Social Media Blues, a podcast for those who struggle with social media but can't afford to get out of it. I am your hostess, Elsa Figueroa, and this is today's episode. Hello, welcome to Social Media Blues. Today is Friday, October 18th, and I was getting ready to record yesterday, but... Um, I've had tech issues yet again and frankly all of my tech issues in the past few years have had a name and it's time I admit that and the name is Apple so um, I've been unhappy with Apple products for a couple maybe of last year or so um, and I even started thinking that by the next time I, I need to upgrade my phone, I'm, I'm going to transition out of an iPhone, away from an iPhone. Um, so I've been using Mac products since 2009 when I got my first MacBook Pro. And I fell in love with it, but honestly, it's just gotten progressively worse for me in the past year or so last year unfortunately i lost my trusty um macbook pro laptop and um, that was entirely my fault i put it in a bag with an open bottle of water that was my fault but then i decided to get a macbook air because it was like a thousand dollars cheaper and it had everything i needed or so i thought from the specs but it turns out that the hardware is is really not that great um i don't i don't know i have issues with the keyboard i have issues with the trackpad it's it's not the same thing as it used to be and you know other people have ease of use with it but i just i need to use an external keyboard i need to use an external mouse i was using a logitech mouse and everything was fine and then one day it stopped working so it's just been one issue after the other. So I decided to kind of phase out of um, Apple for the time being. I don't know what's happening. This laptop, uh, this MacBook Air crashed Wednesday night for mysterious reasons. It's not working right now, so I need to take it for repair. Um, you know, I bought it at Best Buy and um, I am using my Windows laptop, a Toshiba, that I got a few years ago because I wanted, I needed to have a Windows environment for certain translation programs that I need to use that are only, that are Windows exclusive. And previously I had had a virtual machine in my laptop, in my Mac laptop, but it made it very slow and it was just kind of chaotic. So I decided to have a separate um, Windows laptop for those translation projects and that's what I'm using right now and it cost me like less than $500 on Amazon um, yeah so I don't know so I'm on audacity went back to my Yeti microphone and you know hopefully this is working this is forcing me to really learn to use other programs to learn to edit video on my phone and things like that so you know it's a struggle but it's also in the end it's it's kind of increasing my my tech skills in a way so i'm glad about that um 
Okay, so today um, I want to talk about a topic that I've been thinking a lot about, this concept of the public and the private self, and how much do we share on public media like social media. So um, as a content creator or curator specifically, and, and in this episode I'm going to be trying to make the distinction between someone who is creating content on purpose a curator, I'm going to call it, and um, for whatever purpose to promote a cause, a business, etc. Um, from, I'm going to be distinguishing that from a regular user who's not trying to promote anything, they're just using the platform to share about their life and communicate with their friends and family members. I'll try to keep it separate as much as possible. So as content curators, how much do we share about ourselves? The authenticity style that was popularized by YouTube, where people stand in front of the camera and just speak into it, has made it easier to relate on a personal level with the content creators we follow. They tell us about their favorite topics from their bedroom or their living room and speak to us in a very direct, extemporaneous, unscripted style that really resonates with the constant communication culture we live in today. So I'm going to lead, because I mentioned YouTube and the YouTuber, I'm going to lead with a brief, very, 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 very brief history of the YouTuber. I will be working on a more detailed history of these social media platforms in the future. Um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe about doing that during the Christmas break um, but for now this is you know like a very brief succinct overview um, because a lot of people you know they know about YouTube of course but maybe don't know about all the different influences um, that you can observe if you've been following this media for a long time. So um, YouTube was created in 2004 and I found out, I didn't know this, the, the creators, there were three guys, um, they worked for PayPal at the time. And one of the creators, his name is Karim, and he uploaded the first video in 2005 and it was called Me at the Zoo. So I remember back when YouTube first came out, I personally used it to rewatch old music videos. Um, if you weren't around back then or, or if you were very young, uh, music video culture became very popular in the 80s and 90s. And you know, the 90s was like the golden era of music videos with MTV and VH1. And um, so when I was a teenager, watching music videos was like a thing, like for, I would watch music videos for like hours after school. and. I would you also use YouTube to, you know, look at funny stuff. Um, but at that time, I wasn't aware of any YouTuber culture as such, even though it's been there almost as long as the platform has existed. So some of the first YouTubers, um, there are people, innovators who took to the platform right away um, to post content on, in a regular fashion. So this is not just me taking a random video of my cat doing something funny and just uploading it for my friends, you know, using YouTube as a hosting site of sorts, but 
an actual channel where I'm just sharing things with my friends and family and then strangers start looking at what I'm posting and then I start cur curating and curating content on a regular schedule and some of these people include um, Michelle Fan who is a makeup artist um, she became really popular with her Barbie makeup video and she actually was the founder of, of Epsi um, which is a makeup company where they send you um, a monthly makeup bag um, um, and it's it's subscription based I had it for a little bit um, a while ago and she's the creator of that um, she actually disappeared from YouTube I think it was in 2016 and just kind of started doing something else she just completely stopped uploading um, another one is Epic Rap Battles. There are many um, others, uh, but one of the ones that I personally recognize also as one of the fathers of the YouTuber is the Angry Video Game Nerd. Um, so these are people who started uploading regularly and with the Angry Video Game Nerd, it, you can start seeing this concept of the persona or the character, right? So this uh, guy, I think his last name is Rolf, um, created a persona a character for his videos and the yeah the name tells you it's the angry video game nerd so he's like a huge video game nerd and he just plays video games and he gets really angry about them and he makes all these faces and he's actually really funny so this idea of it's not him i mean it's him but it's it's also this other character that he portrays that he plays online so the YouTuber movement, in my view, made it possible to remove the artifice of sponsored media produced for television and cinema that has a, a wide range of budgets. And it also made it possible for just anybody, really, that there are no barriers of entry. Anybody with the creativity and the desire and the time <laughs> to just post content online. It was now possible for random people with zero budget to simply turn their cameras towards themselves and start talking. But I think the proliferation of smartphones um, later on and the advancements in phone camera technology have made it possible for even more people to enter the creator market because now you don't even need to buy a camera. You can just use the same device you use for as a phone that you're already paying for every month. So it's even blower barrier of entry um i wanted actually to hail back to something uh, else that i consider a precursor i think also all of this media would not be where it is without the reality tv industry and the first show that i remember i think it was the first one is called the real world mtv's real world i don't know if you were around back then or if you were paying attention but the real world started airing in 1992 i know people i have friends in my life who were born that year <laughs> so the real world was there um and it was a way for show producers to actually lower costs um, by using just regular people and just showing them um, living together in an apartment and just you know and and became incre incredibly popular I remember back then I didn't understand the format and I hated it because I would go to MTV to watch music videos and these people were taking up all the time like I didn't 
when I washed it very loosely, but I, I hated it because they were taking up the time that would have been slotted for music videos. But it was a it turned out to be as a as a business um, and media decision. It was brilliant. So this is back in 1992, and I think this is the sort of thing that just kind of seeping into the culture where you now don't have to be a professional presenter, actor, TV person, singer, etc. to be on TV on a regular basis. You can actually be there and become a, a sort of celebrity or a full-on celebrity just by being yourself. Um, this idea of authenticity has been a game changer in many ways and has heavily influenced marketing approaches also. If you think about how massive marketing content is in our lives too, um, so don't think about marketing as something separate from yourself, right? This is something that we're inundated by every moment of every day with very few exceptions. So it stands to reason that this will begin to have a direct effect on the general culture and zeitgeist and social dynamics of our times. Parallel to YouTube culture and the transformations in technology and marketing and branding strategies, we've had, of course, the rise of social media. I'm not, I know YouTube is considered social media, but I don't know, for me, it's a little bit different. Um, but when I talk about the rise of social media, I'm talking about Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and all the others. Um, and this has also influenced and been influenced by all of the above. People share more and more of their lives on social media. Um, my Facebook account dates back to 2006. I had just finished as a master abroad in undergrad, my undergrad studies, and I wanted to stay in touch with my friends. The way we shared back then was very different and social media hadn't colonized so much of our lives and I think part of it is social media would be nowhere near what it is today without the development of smartphones, right? So not just this idea that you have a cell phone which had been around since the 80s, so you carry your phone with you at all time. I say the 80s because the cell phone had existed, it's just not in a, in a mass market way. But beginning in the 2000s, it, they became widespread, but it was actually the smartphone itself, right? This concept of this device that holds everything. It's not just a phone, it's actually a mini computer that you carry around with you all the time. I don't think social media would be what it is without that technology. And those technologies developed in their own, but then they became integrated. So if Apple hadn't launched that smartphone revolution back when they did, right, um, maybe social wouldn't have taken off the way it did. So there was a big confluence of factors and developments happening at the same time that led to the present moment. And as more social media platforms began to make their appearance, um, we later had Twitter, Instagram, and as Facebook and YouTube evolved, people began to open up more of their lives to the public. Um, and here I'm talking about the entire public, not just cre creators. The viral video that got millions of views would so soon translate into money. People could create channels on YouTube and have subscribers. 
So that also translates into money. You have sponsored ads. So being a YouTuber became a career in those years. And the other social media platforms were part of that because you would also utilize those platforms to promote your content so you could direct more people to your videos and therefore keep making money. We also saw the rise of the influencer culture where we've seen people make millions of dollars selling literally their influence. These are people who have amassed a large following on social and this is highly lucrative for marketers and sellers. Influencer culture thrives on relatability and authenticity, or at least the illusion of it. And this is important because we've gotten to the point where we are no longer sure how real something is. It's kind of like reality TV, as I pointed out, where the performance takes on the trappings of reality and the appearance of reality is enough. So. Influenced by the general culture, people also posted more and more of their lives. I think this influence of this style of authenticity and opening up and sharing was um, there was a conversation between creator and user cultures, and it wasn't just the vacation pictures and the decadent dinner. Um, it was also our own private thoughts, our opinions and ideas about the world. We started sharing those even if we were not creators ourselves. So these are the things I find really fascinating about this process. One, um, we began to manage much of our social capital online and in a way our virtual social capital became just as important or even more important than our social capital in the material sense. And I'm going to launch into a brief explanation here so open parenthesis parenthesis you'll notice i don't generally use the word the word real to refer to the non-virtual world if you go back I, I try to avoid that wording a lot of people use it for ease of communication the real world versus the virtual world i stay away from that because all of it is part of reality as we human beings construct it. So the virtual world is also real in as much as we develop our relationships, paid activities and consumption in the virtual space. My point, in fact, in talking about virtual social capital is that said virtual social capital can have real impacts on our material lives. So I just wanted to, to briefly talk about why I don't use real quote-unquote real world versus non-virtual world all of it is reality i use virtual and physical or material world um to distinguish those two <sighs> hope i don't get um any angry letters from philosophers okay so our <laughs> philosophers of language <laughs> briefly what is social capital right so i'm also talking about social capital and maybe it's not really clear what i mean by that um there isn't a specific definition i was actually trying to find one and all of this stuff says there is no clear definition of social capital but in general it can refer to the benefits and access that you gain from the social networks that you belong to and um, also your perceived level of respectability and admirability in society. So social capital can be affected by perceived conformity to culturally accepted standards of beauty, wealth, 
um, belonging to specific socioeconomic classes, having desirable or undesirable attributes, etc. So when you dress up in the morning to go out, depending on where you're going and the choices that you make in dressing up, in whether to do your hair this way or that way, wear makeup or not, etc., that is managing your social capital too. So it's kind of like this idea if you wear a suit, like a very nice suit, um, and you look very powerful and have a really good posture, then people are going to, you're going to be able to influence people. So it's a sense of influence as well. And this is why people say sometimes that being a white upper class male gives you the most advantage in life, at least in US and US influenced societies. This is also why the phrase, for example, driving, driving or living or drinking, etc., while black exists. Um, so an influencer with millions of followers who is perceived to be physically attractive according to the standards of beauty of at the time and, and she has a desirable body according to those standards of beauty will have a lot of social capital that she can cash in for stays at luxurious hotels around the world and free makeup bags. That's social capital, and that's what um, influencers also barter in. So as we continue, the okay. So the other thing is, um, the other thing that I find fascinating is that as we continue to manage our social capital online, people began to take a cue from the content creators we admired and followed, and then even people who were not following any creators and creators began to take a cue from people who are doing so etc etc creating some sort of trickle-down effect i'm not so sure though that it's a trickle-down effect maybe um assuming that the effect comes from the creator to the user side maybe it's a conversation maybe it's i mean it's hard to say what happened first or who's who influenced whom it's probably impossible to figure that out but i think there was a conversation happening where um creators there was what i what i mean is that before and when you went to the when you went to watch tv or you went to the movie theater or you went to the theater or you went to a concert hall there was like a very clear diff separation between the creator and the the artist right the performer and the audience and now that those barriers are being blurred there the boundaries are not very clear and we are all kind of you know sort of spectators consumers and performers at the same time um so i began thinking about this topic with a concern for the balance between the public and the private person for myself as a marketer and creator right um, and thinking about myself as both spectator and performer. I'm putting several things out there in the world. I have this podcast in which I share personal feelings and ideas and opinions specifically about social media, general media, creative process and entrepreneurship. I also have my studio's social media pages, which consume most of my very limited social media energies. And I have my personal Instagram page where I share mostly about my personal dance journey. In each one of these public media iterations, to call it something, I show an aspect or set of aspects about myself and my life. 
And though I consider myself to be pretty authentic in my style of delivery, and I always do it thinking about what I find value, so valuable, so according to my values, uh, there is always a sense of performance. Because you're curating, right? You're always curating. Whatever, whatever you post online, you're curating your life. And I'm not, again, I'm not criticizing that. I'm saying that's wrong because we're adjusting to the limitations and restrictions of the medium. And this is, this is what the medium allows. And we are supposed to manage our social capital. I don't believe in, in not doing that either because it's not safe. Um, it's part of you know, the human experience as well. But um, but it's the way it is, right? This I'm just describing how things are. And in many social interactions anyway, whether online or in the material world, there is a level of performance. The more you trust someone and the safer you feel with them, the more of you, on, of your unscripted, unedited self you will tend to show. And the more, the less comfortable you feel with others, the more guarded you will be. Um, do you have a friend or a family member that you feel that you can be yourself with and you can't tell them anything? In my case, for example, I have a partner with whom I feel that way. That's, that's why I keep him. Because I personally cannot deal with performing all the time. So there's, in social interactions, there's always some level of performance depending on so many factors, who you are. But... Um, there's always also that person in your life or hopefully there is a person in your life with whom you can just completely be yourself and you know bring down the walls um, so there's this social persona that you adopt and you have different social personas for different groups of people right so um, this is part of also the experience and these are the lines and the distinctions I feel are getting blurred nowadays with social media I think authenticity is fantastic actually because it has truly empowered many people to show up and have a voice. Transgender people, people of color, women, women of color, minorities. Authenticity has allowed them to show up in front of the camera and speak about their experience. And the world needs to hear those voices and experiences. We desperately do. At the same time, we're giving away more and more of ourselves to social media, not realizing that the people who portray authenticity through their channels and platforms are often performing a paid job. And so they've developed a persona that, while it might be based on their re real authentic self, is still a character of sorts. And so every person in social media, while managing their social capital, is also playing a role where it's okay to open up about your gripes and pet peeves. Um, sometimes, yes, we do need to hear those rants about social injustice from our neighbors, but other times I wonder how safe and healthy it is for us to put so much of our private selves out into the world, especially given how Facebook is designing the feed and how it's the decisions it's making in terms of its AI and, and its algorithm. So, <laughs> as usual, I didn't have answers. I mostly have questions. But I think that it starts with thinking about how much of our sh ourselves should we publish um, and 
share for all the world to see and who is looking at that and more importantly what effect is that having in our psyche I am not sure that using the internet for validation and for help with mental health issues is really all that beneficial I think it might be detrimental in any case it's important to understand as much as possible why we post what we post and this goes back to my episode about attention um, which was a couple weeks ago, whether positive or negative, and above all, to have clearly demarcated spaces for ourselves, unmediated, unedited, and not for public consumption. Last Saturday, I had the opportunity to visit a local tourist spot called um, Charco Azul. Well, it's a nature spot. shouldn't call it a tourist spot. It's a nature spot here. Um, and it's a beautiful natural pool fed by a network of interconnecting streams up in the mountains. And going there was one of those decisions that I made very consciously. My body was telling me that I needed rest, but I knew that if I stayed home, I would not rest. My, um, it has been hard to unplug my mind above all from thinking about business and work and house chores. So I have to make these conscious decisions in order to preserve my sanity and avoid burnout. And as, as soon as I got to that place, I felt unplugged. I didn't have to work for it. It just happened naturally. I wanted to be in the moment of what I was doing and I was perfectly. It was truly fantastic. And it made me realize that this time out in nature is extremely important in order to gain some sense of balance in life. That's what I'm talking about. Carving out space away from the hubbub of social media, the news, the internet, work, problems, struggles. Just you in your body in perfect synchrony with space and time. Making it a point to have those spaces, not once a year when you take your cruise around the Caribbean, no once a month during your massage, but preferably at least a few minutes a day and every week so that you get back to who you are, who is that person, not the performer, not the spectator, you. Who you are in this moment, in this time, without the pressures of performing for others. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Social Media Blues. Remember that you can send me any questions, suggestions, concerns to socialmediabluespodcast.gmail.com and I'm also on Instagram, Social Media Blues, so be sure to check that out. I'm also putting out a weekly IGTV check-in on Instagram called Tuesday Blues on Tuesdays, although this week I did it on Wednesday because of situations. <laughs> but um, I'm there so anyway check that out I'll be happy to hear from you and if you could please rate this podcast and maybe leave a review that would be fantastic I want more people to find it um, so that we can start growing and, and sharing in um, these conversations I'm, I'm really hungry for other people's perspectives and feedback thank you very much and have a wonderful rest of the week <laughs>